When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome to another episode of Inside the Episode 1865. I am one of the producers and directors, Rob McCollum, and joining me as always are our creative team, Stephen Walters and Eric Archilla. Guys, welcome. Hey, Rob. Glad to be here. Thanks, Rob. So it is great to be into this episode now. We are finally in full board on the season, and Grant is taking charge, and, and the decisions that he is making is having some repercussions across the political landscape. So one of the things that starts off this episode is we get to hear a familiar voice from season one, the voice of Langston, voiced by Will Harper, who is a fan favorite as well as one of our favorites. Yeah, Will Harper, who is one of my favorite actors and one of my favorite humans. And uh, John Mercer Langston is going to be a big part of uh, season two and potentially the story that's going to follow. Yeah, we were so happy that our, our buddy Will got nominated for an Emmy yes. in, in the last um, And robbed, year. I say, robbed. Yeah. Robbed completely, yeah. Uh, his portrayal of Cheaty in Good Place is just amazing. Uh, for those folks who are TV fans, uh, Will's work on camera is just as good as his work on the mic and on stage. But Langston is coming back to, you know, into the story to introduce a new character named Joseph Rainey. That's right, Joseph Rainey, who was actually the first black congressman in the House of Representatives. And Joseph's going to be with us for a while in this season as the attempt to elect him to this position is going to have some pretty serious repercussions. And we were able to call in another actor that we love very dearly and we're very happy to have in this role. And that is Sidney James Harcourt, which some of you may recognize if you are fans of the musical Hamilton. He was the original Mr. Reynolds and then went on to play several roles, including the President Washington, and then as Burr yes. on the Broadway version of and that show. Sydney was kind enough to get me uh, standing room only tickets to Hamilton in the earliest days of the original cast, and I got to see him go on as George Washington. He was absolutely incredible. We're so lucky to have him lend his talents to the 1865 story. I'm a huge Hamilton fan, so and and I was able to see him in New York, and it was incredible. So I'm I'm so excited that Sydney's joined us. Yes, very lucky to have him in this story and in an an important character. Mr. Rainey is the, the first black man elected to the House in South Carolina at a time 
Uh, I mean, listen, the violence down south in the wake of President Lincoln's assassination, especially in the lead up to the election of 1868 and beyond into the midterm elections, it was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. But South Carolina was a particular hotbed. And I think that that is in no small part because of men like Joseph Rainey. I believe, Eric, you said that there were four congressional districts in South Carolina. Three out of the four were black men running for Congress. And, you know, the reason that Rainey is first is because he runs in two elections. He actually wins twice. He wins a special election to replace a Republican congressman who was censured and resigned in the midst of corruption charges. Uh, So that puts him first. But he also runs for the the general election, and he ultimately succeeds in, in winning both, as we as we say in this this episode, but the backlash is swift and it is severe. Well, and speaking of that backlash, one of the things that you'd mentioned early on that you really wanted to do with this season, Steve, is try to get us a little bit as, as much as possible outside the halls of of power in D.C., as uh, you know, as much of our story dictated that it would take place in and, and really start to see some of the results on the ground. One of the ways you accomplish that is bringing us two new characters, Rose and Jim Williams. Yes, yes. So, you know, I felt when I first started to kind of conceive of what season two would be, and in Eric and I's earliest conversations, we had focused on a character named General Nathan Bedford Forrest, who is thought to be the uh, first, I guess, Grand Wizard of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, He was brought to Washington to testify in the KKK uh, investigations that took place in Congress in the 1870s. We thought that that would be an interesting story to tell because it took place in the halls of power. But then as we started investigating that more, we thought, well, we don't really want to give voice to that character uh, for a lot of reasons. And we thought it would be much more interesting to give voice to the folks who were actually impacted by some of these decisions. And that led us pretty quickly to Captain William's story. Yeah, we, we delved into the hotbed of the entire period, which was South Carolina. Uh, South Carolina was the focal point of all of the KKK activity that we see at the time and just such horrible tragedy coming out of that state. And one of the most prominent cases was Captain Jim Williams. Well, and we're going to talk about it a little later on this inside the episode because we had a chance to sit down with a special guest, Dr. Ray Christian, who's going to sit with us in in a bit. But Jim was one of the few stories we could actually find because so little of this history was recorded, right? Yeah, that's that's been one of the things that's uh, that's distressing and depressing, I think, about at least the research that Eric and I have been doing is that there just is a dearth of information out there. And, you know, you can't help but wonder how deliberate it is, right? You know, Eric, I think, can speak to this in, you know, from his point of view, but from mine, it's very sad that there are so many forgotten heroes of American history, men like Jim Williams, who have just been lost. Jim Williams fought for the Union. He escaped slavery and joined the North. And you had all of these men that were promised that they would see freedom on the other side. And it's especially tragic when he risked his life to earn that freedom and and then to see it yanked away from him. Yeah, it's it's a tragic story. And then, you know, in, in the halls of Washington, simultaneous to this, you have President Grant who finds himself in a situation that might sound familiar. He's trying to keep a large coalition together. He's trying to, in Grant's case, he's got reform Republicans, radical Republicans, and stalwart Republicans, which we call Grant men. They are essentially social progressives on the radical Republican front, politicians who want clean, good government on the reformer front. And on the stalwart Grant men front, they're sort of moderates kind of... uh, a little bit closer to to modern day Republicans in their fiscal policy. They're pro-business and they're pro-railroad and pro-expansion, and they are uh, loosely allied with the radical Republicans. 
But he's trying to keep all these disparate factions together, and he's trying to do the right thing by the freedmen, and he finds himself between a hammer and an anvil. And also getting no help from Thurman and, and the Democrats that he's trying to, you know, get some bipartisan support for. Yeah, and I think that it's Captain Williams who's going to pay the price for all of this political diciness that's happening in D.C. I don't mean to say that James Garfield is responsible for Captain Williams' death. In no way, shape, or form do I think that. But there is some inaction that happens. And I think that Grant is to blame. I think the Congress is to blame. And certainly the the KKK down on the ground in the South is to blame. Well, and speaking of Jim and Rose as characters, since we're flexing all of our cast might on this already, we've talked about Tony Award winners and Emmy nominees. We have another Emmy nominee taking the role of Rose, Kelly Jenrette. Kelly Jenrette, yeah, is a fantastic actress, nominated for her role in uh, Handmaid's Tale. And she plays opposite one of my favorite actors in the world, a gentleman named Francois Baptiste, one of the best actors that I've ever known and a fine man. And uh, I first met Francois doing a play at the Dallas Theater Center back in 2008 called The Good Negro by one of my favorite writers, Tracy Scott Wilson. It's a really powerful story, and Francois made such an impression on me as one of the leads in that show. Kelly and Francois are both incredible actors who fully embody these characters, and they're truly magical together. Jim is a character that I fell in love with and thought, okay, as I'm reading it for the first time, and I'm sure as everyone was hearing it for the first time, like, oh, great. We have another great character to take us through this season and to have him so brutally ripped from us so quickly in, in all in one episode, I know is intentional because it is an incredibly brutal time. And, and But but I was, I was really, I was like, wait, no, that can't be Jim's story. That can't be the end of Jim. And it is, in fact, the end of Jim. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get more details about what happened. But, um... but I have to say that it was intentional on, on my part because it's like, I feel like in this era, especially... If you see any Black Americans on heroes' journeys, it just feels like every time it's taken right away. They're undercut and they're killed. And um, I wanted I wanted to to put that brutality into the story because I feel like it's it's important for the listener to understand the reality of what it was like for that community on the ground in South Carolina. Well, speaking of you know the the experience of people on the ground in South Carolina, and that you wanted to bring more of that into the story. We wanted to bring another voice into this Inside the Episode podcast because there is a voice that you heard on the episode, that of Andy Timms, and that is voiced by Dr. Ray Christian. He is a storyteller extraordinaire, a host of his own podcast, What's Ray Saying? And so Eric reached out to him and invited him to sit down with us here on the Inside the Episode podcast. Dr. Ray, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me, guys. So your your show is incredible, first of all. Everybody needs to tune in to What's Ray Saying? at What's Ray Saying on Twitter. He just tells so many stories about the Black experience in America, and I've personally found that very invaluable, and I, I really, really appreciate you telling those stories. Dr. Ray, thank you for being on the show. We actually just recorded uh, Ray's performance right before this interview, and it's it's incredible. You really did really lovely work. Tell us about the story of like what made you feel this this drive to tell these stories. Well, I would start with the idea that... Uh... First, I lived the life. Then I started telling stories about it. I think when I got out of the Army, I was listening to a lot of public radio, and I was listening to stories that I thought, wow, you know, I have everyday stories that sound like these. And I also was concerned with the idea that uh, people have questions they want to ask about history, about sociology, but they won't ask. 
And I knew when I was in the army, I used to get these kind of strange questions. You know, why do black people do this? Why do black people do that? Why do they live in these places? Why do they look so different? And it occurred to me that it would be a good idea to have a resource where people could take those questions, the ones you don't want to ask your black friends, the ones that have real answers, the ones that you don't want to set yourself up to look stupid, that my podcast would answer those questions. You got a question about black people? You want to uncover some stories? You want to get into some nuances? Come to my show. That's what I wanted to do with the podcast. I'm going to answer those questions you were thinking about, but you didn't want to ask. That's the point. I think it might be helpful for the listeners to to sort of hear a little bit about your military background. What what is your experience in the military? All right. So I joined the army uh, at 17 years old. Had to have my mama's permission. Now my folks couldn't read or write, so I had to tell, explain to my mama what was on the form. She just took my word for it. I said it's the reserves. I'll just do one weekend a month and I'll be right back. But it wasn't, you know. When I joined the Army, I remember thinking that uh, the harder you work, the more money you make. Hmm. So I go to the recruiter and I tell the guy, listen, I got to make some money. Give me the hardest job you got. (laughs) (laughs) And they did. I became a paratrooper in the infantry, and I had never been on a plane before in my life. Wow. In fact, my first five times on a plane, I had to jump out of that plane. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. But that's, that wasn't an uncommon story, uh, something that you would hear. It tells you a lot about the kind of people and that the military recruits. So got out of airborne school. I served in a ranger unit for a while, a couple tours in Korea, uh, did combat patrols on the demilitarized zone in Korea when people had long forgotten about the Army, you know, that we were even in Korea. Moved up through the ranks, served in Germany, served in the first Gulf War, was wounded, stationed at Fort Bragg maybe three times. I was a drill sergeant for a few years. Ultimately, though, by the end of my career, when I got around about 18 years in, I was suffering from uh, undiagnosed uh, PTSD. And, uh, you know, uh, I would say being in the Army is probably the biggest trigger you could have for PTSD when you got that PTSD for military service. Yeah. But a lot of people on active duty do have PTSD. And that makes me think about Grant and some of the other uh, people that we're talking about in the episode in, uh, in 1865, considering the fact that many of these men were probably suffering from a form of battle fatigue. Mm. Alcoholism was probably common because it's not that alcohol doesn't work. It just comes with some serious side effects. Right. You know? Yeah, it's interesting, Ray, that you said that, because that's kind of been my take on General Grant, um, you know, who is sort of the the character that's going to take us through the story in the middle of all these complications with the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, the freedmen community, you know, political back and forth in the halls of power. We're following Grant on this long journey, and that's my take on him. My take on him is, is he, that he suffers from a form of PTSD, having been in a leadership position to have to kind of keep sending his troops to die over and over and over. And of course, you know, they called him a butcher and all these different things. And I can't, you know, that was my take on him is that that's why he drank. That's why he had this troubled relationship with alcohol is because of these, these demons that tormented him. And, you know, I think PTSD is the right word for it. Right. And they probably, they had no word for it probably then, but you could probably guess what their behavior was like. 
You know, that was a constant. It was like he came to the presidency a little soon, don't you think? Mm-hmm. After a horrible war, you know. Yeah. Yeah. He, he didn't put that down. That had to factor into his behavior in some way. When you think about also to continue this idea of PTSD, you know, you have Andy Thames, you have Captain Jim Williams, you know, uh, f- former slaves now fighting, you know, in the Union Army. And then after the war is over, the freedom that's been promised to them is in peril because, you know, of the 10th Amendment and because of these, you know, states' rights advocates pushing their agenda under the sort of veil of constitutionalism. What they're really doing is they're trying to kill the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments right. before they ever get off the block. And so you have folks like Jim Williams and Andy Timms who are being asked to protect the polls so that black folks can vote. And in the midst of all this, you have the rise of the KKK. I mean, could you tell us a little bit about like what you know about the black experience at this time in America? So many blacks were murdered in the aftermath of the Civil War during Reconstruction for alleged crimes and for no reason at all. Frustrated, angry, depressed, traumatized Confederate soldiers returning home. Some had nothing. And then they saw the source, the cause of all their alleged anger, these black faces. Could you imagine having been a black Union soldier and trying to live in the South after the war? Can't take any pride in your service. You certainly can't be wearing parts of your uniform around. Blacks were in fear of their lives. All the promises made quickly went down the tubes. Women being raped, murdered abused in every way you can imagine. It would be hard for me to imagine that all those promises made, people could actually believe. Because white people could still offer some influence. They still had perceived power to black people. I think it would have taken at least a generation for people to not be so instantly afraid to believe. But then again, after a lifetime of slavery, What's the worst that could happen to you? Mm. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting in the, in the podcast in season two, you know, the characters talk a lot about this concept of enforcement. Right. Because, because I think one of the things that is lost on modern day folks is that it's like, okay, well, there was the 13th and the 14th and the 15th Amendments, and then they happen. And so now everybody was equal. I mean, forget about women, right? Let's not bring that subject up because that's also uncomfortable. But it's like, we take it for granted. It's like the 13th and the 14th and the 15th happened. And so now it's all done. The war is over. But as we know from looking at the pages of history, what we learn is, is that that was really meaningless without enforcement, without federal enforcement. And so, so the government goes through this big period of change with the institution of the Justice Department and with many of the things that Grant was pushing Congress to do during this time. But what do we know from the pages of history about how that was impacting the situation on the ground. Think about the army at the end of the Civil War. Who's in the army? What are they doing in the army? Major combat operations now are shifting to the West. You don't exactly have the most disciplined, the most motivated, the most driven army as an occupation army. These soldiers are not eager to go out and do things. Just think about an army of occupation after the war. So you had a broken military, not doing what they were supposed to do, certainly not well-trained, overwhelmed, and a lot of people maybe even supporting the cause. And who could care less? 
you think about the number of people who just wanted this thing to end. It's over now. Whatever they want to do to those black people, do we really have to go way out of town, 20, 30 miles, to find about a complaint of a black person? And what, take the word of a black over that of a white? No. I think these were difficult times. That little short period of time when the uh, federal government did offer protection and Black men were voted into office at the state, local, federal level. All those gains and the anger and the blowback and those people who didn't know where to go, afraid to leave, lack of education was probably widespread. I mean, what number of the population of former slaves could probably even read and write and knew what a law was? Mm. Must have been a massive operation for the Freedmen's Bureau. I don't know how they could be successful. It would have taken, what, hundreds of thousands of soldiers, tens of thousands of U.S. Marshals, people still dedicated to education and, uh, and uplift. I think uh, a lot of people may have exploited, uh, what does the Southerners commonly call these people, scallywags if they're Southerners, mm-hmm. carpetbaggers if they're from the North. Right. You know, can you imagine all these people coming into a broken and destroyed South, homelessness, Slaves running about, nobody telling them what to do, and white men wanting to get it back. You know, one of one of the driving forces for, you know, for me behind this project, and I know for Eric as well, is to elucidate some of this, to, you know, to, to sort of force people to confront it. Because I'm not sure that, look, I mean, like you talked about, Ray, it's like, you know, the military is perhaps ill-equipped and the Freedmen's Bureau is perhaps ill-equipped at this time to handle this problem. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's the question of can the military remake a culture is a very interesting question. And I think if you look at Reconstruction, I mean, the answer is, well, no, it can't. And, no. you know, and I think that, you know, for, for all of General Grant's, President Grant's best efforts, I think that it, it was never going to be enough, you know? And I think that there is, because of the original sin, it's baked in to our constitution, this problem. And, you know, I'm not sure that we have had true, well, of course we have not had true reconciliation, but I think one of the reasons why is because we have not yet confronted the horrific reality of it. And I think that's a a big part of what, for me at least, the show is about, is trying to, to dig into these forgotten spaces of history and to try to mine them and to try to lift them up so that people can have a conversation about this stuff. And that, that's a great segue to what I wanted to talk about next was the – when we talk about forgotten things of history, I don't think most Americans realize that so many black congressmen and senators existed in the late 1870s and 80s. It's kind of a period we just never learn about. We always think about the 1960s being you know kind of the first time that we see a lot of right, blacks in Congress right, 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 and right, – right, right. Um, so is that relatively common knowledge in the black community, or is that something that just entirely has been wiped from history? I think it's commonly misunderstood history from two perspectives. When I was a kid, uh, say in the 60s, when we used to have this poster in our classroom it's called Significant Negroes in American History. Hmm. And, you know, there was George Washington Carver. There was uh, Harriet Tubman and uh, various other figures that you might be familiar. These were ideal black people. These were the ones you could aspire to be. And I recall that there was a poster of all the former black senators and congressmen prior to Reconstruction. 
At that time, I had no idea what any of this meant. I had no context for it. Mm-hmm. But what I think is misunderstood, and I hear this from both sides of this argument, from a more conservative perspective, they tend to say something like, see this picture? See, a long time ago, we had lots of black politicians. Mm-hmm. Everything was good back then. See this picture? Everything was wonderful. We treated them fairly. But they don't talk about what it was like to be a black representative during Reconstruction. Yeah. Not being able to get transportation, having to have your life threatened all the time. And some of them were killed. And I think the biggest misunderstanding is what that gap in time was. The return to white supremacy. Yeah. That little piece of history is kind of like missed. And I think, Ray, that for those uh, of our audiences that are listening to this conversation, you have to remember that in 1868, the Democratic Party had a slogan, a campaign slogan for their campaign that year. And that slogan was literally, this is a white man's government, let white men rule. And so I think people need to understand that because if there's anybody out there that has this fantasy in their head that for the old South, the old Confederacy, that this war was about anything other than maintaining that way of life, slavery, it's just not true. And in 1868, you had for the first time millions of uh, black folks voting down South for the first time in American history. And there was violence, there was poll bullying, there were lynchings, there was, I mean, as, as Dr. Ray already mentioned, just unspeakable acts and atrocities that occurred in 1868. They happened again in 1870, because in 1870, that was the first time that you had black folks running for the United States Congress, and the second time that you had black folks running for public office, and it got even worse in 1872, and it got even worse in 1874, when for the first time, members of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan were elected to the United States Congress. I think a lot of people don't understand those things or don't, you know, we're not taught those things by our textbooks, but that is the reality. And that's why I think it's so tragic that we don't learn this period, because it does show that even when the law said that it should happen, it didn't. And that we have this little historical blip of black congressmen. And then there's no way to explain it other than the rampant racism that stopped that from happening. And I think if more people knew that history, they would understand a little bit more about how pervasive that problem still is. Well, part of the problem is the proliferation of misinformation. There are people out there who can't remember half of what was taught in high school, but now they're historians. Mm. They're getting data from all kinds of unreliable sources. I would say that if you have a job that allows you to listen to radio all day, You might be one of those people. And what do you do with misinformation? What do you do? You're talking about more than 100 years worth of propaganda. Mm -hmm. The Dunning School, all the bigoted, racist interpretations. And again, teaching to people who probably don't have a good understanding of these things already. I meet too many of them. People who can't tell you where they even got the information from. And these little nuances of history, you know... They are missing them. They're missing huge gaps. It's like the Civil War ended, slavery ended. You should have been doing okay. What's the problem, black people? 
Yeah, you know the Dave, Dr. Ray, you know the Dave Chappelle joke where he says, uh, he says the Civil War happened and there was Reconstruction and then something, 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 Barack Obama. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yes, it's yeah. the something, something, something. So what's your problem? Well, I think it's interesting too, just to kind of tie this back to the story of episode five, where we meet uh, the role that you played, Dr. Ray, Andy Timms, uh, Lieutenant Timms, and his captain, Jim Williams. You know, th- to me, I I made this connection between Joseph Rainey, who was the first black congressman elected to the House of Representatives in 1870 in a special election to replace this uh, this corrupt Republican who's, who's censored and resigns his seat. I drew this connection between Joseph Rainey's presence on the campaign and the violence that breaks out in South Carolina. But I have to tell you that I have not seen that in any textbooks. I haven't seen it in any pieces of historical nonfiction. I have not seen anybody drawing the line between these uh-huh. two events. And I'm just looking and I'm reading through it all. And I'm thinking, well, why is nobody talking about this? It's a very clear line. It's all happening in South Carolina. And, right. Um, well, and, and at we the see- time, right, Eric, at the time, it's like, the, I mean, we were more of a, 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 a Professor Greg Jackson, who's going to be a guest of ours in, in a later inside the episode. You know, he yes. wants, he wants, he try, always tries to remind me, he's like, you got to remember that before the Civil War, that we were a confederation of states. And people's identity was to their state. So to me, it's inconceivable to say that what was the violence on the ground in South Carolina, which was particularly rampant in the early 1870s, was not connected to the fact that Joseph Rainey was on his way to the Congress. Oh, you know it. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. The outrage people must have had. Oh, yeah. That was too much. When, When all four congressmen are Republican and three of the four congressmen that election are black, you know they lost their dang minds. Yeah, the world had come to an end for them. Well, because, yeah, the reports from Washington, D.C. about laws that have been passed are, you know, take months to trickle down through largely rural communities. They don't know. They don't care. They're not paying attention to what happens in Washington, D.C. But when that's in their own community. Oh, and and speaking of they're mis- going to arm up. Speaking of misinformation, to piggyback on what Rob just said and to what Dr. Ray said earlier, the local papers at the time and the Democrat papers at the time were saying that Captain Jim Williams was not murdered. Which, of course, we'll get more into what happened to to Captain Williams in the next episode. But they were saying that he was violent. You know, and it's mm. and it's very reminiscent of some of the things that you read in the news today about Antifa, right? Right. It's like, oh, these Black Lives oh, Matter yeah, protesters yeah, yeah. are are they're all violent Antifa members. Yeah. And it's like this misinformation and this this uh obfuscation of the truth has been with us from the beginning of our country's history. It's just now what's dangerous is that the technology, the social media amplifies this misinformation in ways that we have never had to confront before. It's absolutely amazing how they were able to uh, rewrite the histories. And so thoroughly and completely with monuments and books and celebrations, generations of people have been uh, misinformed. I think that's a, a great place to leave it for this episode. Thank you, Dr. Ray, for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Ray. Dr. Ray, thank you so much for your time, for sitting down with us. We definitely want to touch base with you and, and continue this conversation in our Inside the Episode for Episode 6. So, Stay by the channel, and we will be in touch soon. And thank you for your fine voice work, sir. Oh, man, you guys are make Man, let, let Andy come back as a ghost, man. Make season, <laughs> you know? Bring him back. Never say never, Dr. Ray. <laughs> Any idea you put into Steve Walter's mind may actually happen.
Thank you, Dr. Ray, so much for joining us. Everyone listening, do check out Ray's podcast, What's Ray Saying, available anywhere that you download podcasts. And thank you, Eric and Steve, as always, for being here with us. That is all for this Inside the Episode. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at 1865podcast for more inside information and true history from the show. Also, if you really love the show and you want to help us out, please become a patron at patreon.com slash 1865podcast. Members there get exclusive content, early access, ad-free listening, so much fun stuff. So become a member yourself at patreon.com slash 1865podcast. Thank you for listening. 1865 is an airship production. This episode was hosted by me, Rob McCollum, produced by Eric Archilla, audio editing by Molly Bach, theme music by Lindsey Graham. Be sure to tune in for the next episode of Inside the Episode 1865.